Hello and welcome to the Toast Podcast with me, Laura Barton. For our fifth series, we'll be talking about rhythm, how it forms in us, how we carry it, and where it can lead us. Peggy Seeger was at home in Oxfordshire when we spoke in the early part of the year, sunlight streaming through the window. We talked about growing up a member of America's famous folk family, the music that carried her to the UK, her partnership with Ewan McCall, and particularly where rhythm sits in her own relationship with music. Wow. Well, that already gets into all of the other categories. I mean, to me, there are four basic elements of music. There is rhythm, there's harmony, and there's melody, and there's text. Now, there's probably other things which we would fit in, but rhythm, I I actually looked it up on the computer to see what they had to say rhythm was. And it said, rhythm is music's pattern in time. Whatever other elements a given piece of music may have, that is, patterns in pitch or timbre, rhythm is the one indispensable element. Now, when I talk about rhythm, I talk about if a song has rhythm or if it has pulse. And to me, they are very different. I started making this difference when I got so fed up with whatever music you hear, at least in the popular sphere, it is in 2-4 or 4-4 and you're marching. Jump, 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 with that horrifying backbeat. If it's in 4-4 and the backbeat is on one jump, da, da, one jump, da, and that dominates everything. So I began to think of rhythm as something that the feet do the body might do when it's doing together dancing or together marching or something like that. So it's feet and hands and probably some kind of group action, whereas pulse is your heart. And anybody who takes their heart rate several times a day, which I don't do, will know that your heart changes literally second by second, your heartbeat changes. So uh, it drives my sons crazy when we play together because I operate on a pulse rhythm. And if I record a song that I think is in what I call rhythm, which is three, four, two, four, six, eight, da, 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 some recognizable written down rhythm that anybody else would play all everything as it should be, I don't. And if I record a piece that I think is in 4-4, and then my sons try to add a guitar accompaniment to that, they go nuts because I don't stick to it. A drummer sticks to it, and so many of the bands stick to it because they play with other people. I played by myself, or I played for myself and Ewan McCall for 50 years. You know, so I am my own boss, and what I consider to be rhythm, (laughs) you probably wouldn't. I could show you very easily if you need to. Oh yes, go for it. If you want to show us, that'd be lovely. Okay, there's a a song that is a go-to song if ever I am not feeling like singing and someone wants me to sing. I sing this one. 
It's called I've Been a Bad, Bad Girl. I learned this song literally when I was about three. It's a song made by a prisoner in the Rayford State Penitentiary, a black woman who had murdered her lover. And she was recorded in nine, early 1930s by Alan and John Lomax, famous collectors. And I learned it from her recording. And she sang it very high. I've been a bad, bad girl. It was her own song. And she sang it in her cell. Well, I sing it down, down low like this. I've been a bad, bad girl. Wouldn't treat nobody right. I've been a bad, bad girl. Wouldn't treat nobody right. They want to give me 35 years. Someone wanted to take my life. Now, to me, that's pulse singing. You're going by the heart. And you're singing when you feel the content tells you to sing. If you put it into rhythm, I've been a bad, bad girl, wouldn't treat nobody right. To me, that's rhythm. And the way I sing it is pulse. Now, of course, pulse does have a rhythm. It has stressed and unstressed syllables. But I choose when they're going to be. It depends on the way I think about it. And certainly, if I was to sing that in rhythm, strict rhythm, it would be of my way of thinking it in a different way. So <laughs> this is what is so incredible to me. You know the song, First Time Ever I Saw Your Face? Well, it's your song, yes. It has been covered at least 400 times by 400 different singers, groups. <laughs> And each one of them has interpreted it the way they want. Their pulse is different. Uh, I think there's probably even first time ever I saw your face. Somebody will have done it that way. That is my difference between rhythm and pulse. And it is purely personal. Rhythm can have pulse and pulse can have rhythm. But to me, one of them dominates nearly always. I love this perspective. There are two things that you've mentioned there that I'd like to pick up on and they're kind of related. One is, so, first time ever I saw your face, famously written for you by you and McCall, your, your husband. And you also mentioned how the pair of you had played together for so many decades. How did your pulse grow together and how did you have that intimacy of rhythm as performers as well as, as partners? Well, in the beginning, back in 1956... He was suffering from working with another banjo player. It's a terrible condition. Yeah, it was a four-string banjo. And the four-string banjo is quite mechanistic, and it doesn't have the drone string. And I do want to bring up the idea of the drone string as a rhythm element. Because to me, rhythm has a number of things. It's in the text. It's in incremental repetition, which exists in ballads. It's in drone strings. Mm -hmm. Rhythm comes in a number of ways. But um, Ewan was suffering from being accompanied by a banjo player who just did not understand how to accompany a tradition that had been unaccompanied for 300 years. This is back in the 50s, in the skiffle movement, when they were busy murdering a whole lot of folk songs by accompanying them. So I, I did my murdering of a different way, I must say. 
So Ewan McCall not only <laughs> fell in love with corpus personality or whatever he thought I was at the time because I was 20 years younger than he was and he was in his midlife crisis and I was in my mid-twenties crisis. It, he just loved the fact that I understood what the, how the songs should be but we did start to work together right from the word go. I'm just wondering how that pulse and that rhythm grew together. You, you talked about the difficulty of, of playing with other musicians and keeping their set rhythm because you're following your own pulse. I'm imagining that you had such a, a close relationship, both romantically and, and musically, that you had your own pulse that only existed between the two of you. It was a, we were opposites in every way, you and, and me. Or rather, we were contrasting. Young and older, man and woman, musically literate and musically illiterate, which he was, British and American, male and female. There was every possible c contrast. And so it worked for both of us. He was the first man that I'd ever had anything to do with in the way of uh, romantic. And he was certainly the best at pursuing me, without a doubt. <laughs> <laughs> took him three. <laughs> took him out. three years. Yeah. What swung it in the end for you? After those three years, how did he get you in the end? He wore me out. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good approach. It all came right in one day when he had come over from England to tell me it was all finished, and we started talking instead of him trying to drag me off to bed. Uh, I've had two life partners. One is a man. One is a woman. Been there, done both, as I say. And both of them are soulmates, but in a different way. I was only in love once in my life, and that was with my present partner. But I loved Ewan McCall. And <clears throat> if I had stayed in the United States, I would have been Pete Seeger's sister forever. But here, I literally became my own woman because of the kind of person Ewan was. We gloried in the work together. And we did work together really well. You did actually change quite a lot about rhythm, the pair of you together with, with work like the, um, the critics group or um, even the radio ballads when you brought regional accents onto the radio for you know, pretty much the first time, didn't you? So there was a lot of ryth rhythmic work that you were doing. Well, Ewan had theatre history. Theatre was his first love. So... Ewan and I looked at concerts and at creating songs. You talked about the radio ballads. When you would almost be sitting out in the audience, almost being an audience member and saying, what would I like to hear now? You know, what would wake me up from that nine-minute unaccompanied ballad? You would go immediately something so different. And that's what the radio ballads did. And you do this with talking. I've probably used mostly the same way of talking to you because I have a lot to say. But sometimes when I'm being interviewed, I'll stop and I'll, I'll think of a different way of saying something. And your attention will probably be caught by the difference. And I've decided to use shorter sentences and not to be machine gunning you with talk. So it's a way in the radio ballads to get back to your original question. They were very effective because they were created by a man who put together the four elements of a radio ballad 
into virtually a theatrical production, audio. You've talked about ways of speaking and different rhythms of speech and the fact that you're American, you're British. Um, you live, you've moved all through the world in different countries. What do you think affects our own sense of rhythm? Where does it land or how is, it, how is our own sense of rhythm expressed through the way that we speak? Because you're, you've lived in this country now for 60 years. So your voice has become a, a beautiful amalgamation of American and, and British English. I don't hear that. What do you hear? Tell us what you hear. Well, Canadians ask me what part of Ireland I'm from, and Americans think I'm Canadian. I never did talk uh, ordinary American because my father wouldn't allow it. He says, Peggy, you don't say mountain. You say mountain. Then I had, uh, I had my ultimate quality control with uh, a mother-in-law who lived with us for 16 years in the same house. She didn't like my Americanisms. And so she would tell me, that's not the right word for that. You don't say garage, you say garage. So <laughs> I have fun with life and I have fun with words. But I, I, I don't hear myself talking. I am British. I feel that I'm English. When I go back to America, I become temporarily American, but they all think I'm very strange, especially when I crack a joke and they look blank. Either that or they say, oh, that's not nice. And <laughs> you mentioned your father, and your father was a renowned folklorist, and your mother was a composer. Wasn't she the first woman to receive... A Guggenheim, am I right? Yeah, Guggenheim uh, fellowship to go to Europe. Mm -hmm. What influence did they have on your rhythm? You said about your, your father correcting your speech, but I'm imagining musically that must have been. I remember reading you you wrote in your in your memoir about um, uh, hearing your mother playing the piano, I think. Without my parents, I would be a completely different person. From them, I grew up from very earliest, as early as I can remember, I heard what we call the field singers singing American folk songs. At the age two, I could sing all the way through Barbara Allen for you because of my mother's work transcribing songs for the books of Allen and John Lomax. Uh, my father, he worked with uh, President Roosevelt. He worked with him during the 1930s, traveling around the United States, setting up recording places for recording singers and instrumentalists. It was an attempt to keep people from migrating and taking their communities where they would be dismantled and their culture completely atomized. So my mother would go down to the Library of Congress where all of those recordings were deposited in an archive that my father helped set up at the Library of Congress. And she would bring out recordings and she would then bring them home, transcribe them, and they would be put in books. So while she was transcribing, us three kids were sitting in the corner learning all these songs. So there was that side. And then there was my mother, who was a brilliant pianist, and my father, who was also a brilliant pianist, but not so good as my mother. And those were the two musical parameters that I heard. Nothing in the middle other than what I heard later on my radio, you know, with uh, pop songs of the 19, early 1950s, late 1940s. So I have a big gap in my knowledge of pop music, 
but on the piano I can find my way around anywhere. I can't play classical music anymore. I was very good at one point, but didn't have the nerves. And I like folk song because uh, you have a different kind of nerves, but I don't have nerves anymore. And if anything makes me unique, it's those. It means that sometimes I, I bring elements of classical music into my accompaniments. And my father told me with some of my accompaniments, he says, Peggy, I can hear you thinking while you're accompanying a traditional ballad. And he didn't mean it as a compliment. But on the other hand, it was a bit of a put-down of folk musicians, as if folk musicians don't think. I was wondering about when you first heard your mother's music. I seem to recall it was quite avant-garde, wasn't it? Unexpectedly so. I didn't hear any of my mother's compositions till I was in my mid-30s. Just one piece, uh, a symphonic arrangement of a folk song called Rissleti Rosselty. I had no concept of her as a composer. It wasn't discussed in the family. I feel outraged by that, completely outraged, and I think it was my father's fault. I do. It's a long story. They got along beautifully and they were deeply in love, but he kind of ran the show. I see it now. I didn't see it then. And she she died when you were still a teenager, didn't she? She died in 1953 at the age of 52. How difficult was it then to sort of navigate life as a young woman without your mother, with her hand on your shoulder? Well, it's a sad thing to say, but if she had not died, I would not be living here at this point. I would not have left America and my family. But my family kind of broke up. My father married again. And because the money gave out, because my mother was a major money earner, I was sent over to Europe to live with my older brother, Charles. Uh, and once I'd seen Europe, I didn't want to leave. I loved Europe. I loved all the old buildings and the little tiny lanes and the different languages. And it was a whole new world. The ease with which I gave up my American passport back then was <laughs> interesting to me. Yeah. Did the songs that you had learned about and that you'd studied with your family, did they take on new resonance over, over here when, you know, a lot of them had sprung from the British Isles, hadn't they? I discovered where my songs came from here and I visited some of the places that were mentioned in them. Um, I kind of knew about it, but it wasn't until I transported my parents' library over to Beckenham and Kent. It wasn't until then that I really started looking up the history of the songs. I'm not a folklorist. I'm not uh, an academic. I try to learn about the different songs that I sing when they mention different places. I realize that a number of my American versions are very either broken down or changed into something uh, very interesting. Uh, for instance, one of the songs that I sing is called Weevily Wheat, and it obviously came from a Jacobite song about Charlie, and I play it with the banjo, and it's a southern song, don't want none of your weevily wheat, don't want none of your barley, give me flour in half an hour, I'll bake a cake for Charlie. Then it says, Charlie, he's a fine young man, Charlie, he's a dandy, Charlie, he's a very lad who drank his daddy's brandy. You know, 
Now, I don't know if that's in the original. I doubt it. The Scots would not do that. It would be whiskey. So a lot of the American songs, some, <laughs> some of the new versions are very funny. They are. And some of them are garbled. I usually sing the garble because I'm American. And that's why I'm not noticed a whole lot on the folk scene here. Because, thank goodness, uh, the singing of American songs over here is not so popular as it was in the 50s and early 60s. You've gone to singing English, Scottish, Irish, Welsh, and there's so many wonderful singers here and players of the music that comes from here. And it's so much better than singing American songs badly. And that's me being subtle. <laughs> we appreciate it. Um, you mentioned how your two life partners, one had been a man, one was a woman, and I think of your back catalogue and how many songs you've written about the women's movement and for women. I'm wondering whether women have a tangibly different rhythm in them. I think we get the music that our society deserves. I think we get the music that our language dictates. And I think we're in a period now, I mean, we live in a patriarchy, and if you have any doubts about that, just look at any newspaper, look at all the leaders of all the countries, look at the IMF, how many women are there in that. I do believe that the music, a lot of the music that's on the popular, I don't listen to Radio 3, I don't listen to music in the house because then I can't think. If music starts, I have to stop everything else I'm doing, including cooking, and I just have to listen to the music. So. Music is not wallpaper to me, so I hardly ever have the music on as a background uh, because I can't stand it. Uh, if I want to hear music, I generally turn on what I like, so I don't hear a lot of what I don't like, but I do hear it. Uh, we have to have background to the news, background music to the news. We have to have <coughs> background music to poetry. We have to have background music to every damn thing. It's always there. Uh, but I think the boy bands, an awful lot of our popular music uh, is, is male. It's marching music. It's rhythm music. Look back to the music that I grew up with in the 40s and 50s and, and 60s, and, and there, there's, there's a lot of melody and a lot of words that are interesting. But now, uh, if you can hear the words at all in the cacophony of drums and banging of the guitars and the poof, rhythm just bang, 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 like marching is just, just taken over. I think on the whole, women are a gentler gender and I think we, it's possible that we pay more attention to pulse, I don't know, but there aren't a whole lot of recognizable melodies coming out of the pop music right now. There may be short riffs of this or that short bit that people can sing, but I mean, when I was growing up, you knew the whole song. Now is the hour when we must say goodbye. We sang them all the way through, and we had the concentration to learn them. And we sang along, you know, with, with the singers, who were both male and female, singing really tuneful songs. And the love songs were romantic. They were romantic. As a musician, how has this year been? Because you still play live and you still read and, and perform. Um, how has this year of stillness been for you? Well, my entire year's work was cancelled, everything. I had a 26-gig tour last May and June. 
gone, just completely and utterly gone. And I'm not alone in this. The entire entertainment industry, which is probably half a million, a million people, once you go right down into all of the ways that, that the entertainment industry is supported, uh, we've all lost our jobs. Uh, fortunately, I'm, I'm, I'm not totally dependent on that. So what I'm doing now, uh, I have done, I think, one or two live concerts. I don't like doing it over Zoom. I do, uh, every Sunday I do something. During lockdown, I've been doing Peggy at five on Sunday. So at five in the afternoon on a Sunday, you can go on YouTube and find me there. And all of the old ones, I sing for 20 minutes, I talk and, I'm, and I greet everybody and I say funny things and I entertain to a computer the way I'm in talking to you. And I, I don't read my songs from texts, I do them all from memory so I can look at you while I sing. COVID is th throwing me a few crusts to keep gnawing on. Although in May, I have something planned, I think it's May 27th, somewhere around that, in London, and there'll be 100 people there at a big, in a big hall that's meant to seat 300, uh, and you'll be able to join in on that. What do you miss physically almost from singing live, from being in a room with all those people and sharing music? There's two elements to that for me. One uh, is my ego, because if you get up on a stage and sing to people, there is an element of ego. Even if you're as nervous as a cat on a hot whatever, there is a look at me element. <laughs> I'm not missing that at the moment because I have a new CD coming out and I have a fantastic team of publicity people who are keeping me, me busy. But the other element of what I miss is I, I don't do festivals. I'm not good at it. I don't do demonstrations. I'm not good at it. Give me a hall, a small hall with two or three hundred people in it. And the fact that there's the walls around and everybody is within the walls and is a temporary community. They may go as individuals, but I would hope that they leave as a member of a community, a temporary community, where they've laughed together and some of them have cried together. Uh, they have sung together because we give them songs to sing and maybe give them songs that they've never heard. Now I've said we, so there is a third part of this and that is I only tour with one of my sons now and we have a team. My daughter-in-law, who's my manager, mother, minder, who comes along on every tour, every gig, checks that my hair is right and that I don't have spinach in my teeth. And then there's one of my sons, and we work very hard at rehearsing, and there's a sound engineer. So that's the we. So there is a, a third thing that it's not only my ego, it's, it's a team that goes out. And that's just in the last, since I was 80, and I'm 85 now, although I usually say I'm 86, so it's less painful when June hits. How has your rhythm changed as you've got older? My sense of rhythm, well, when you asked me to do this thing on rhythm, I thought, oh, I can't do that because my main loves are melody and words. And then I had to, a look at an expansion of the idea of rhythm and incremental repetition in the ballads. 
that is best explained by first time ever I saw your face. Three verses, and they all begin with the first time ever I, and then it progresses from sight to kiss to sleeping together. Incremental repetition is a form of rhythm. It's, it's hidden within the text, and it's repeating something, because rhythm repeats. It's a repetition. You can't have a one-event a one rhythm. It doesn't happen. So there is content rhythm to me, and there's one of the ballads that, is, that I sing called Fair Annie, which is one of my most favorite ballads. It's a woman who, like Medea, her husband has decided to marry someone younger. Was it Jason and Medea? I can't remember who, his, who it was. And so she kills her children because that's the way to most wound the husband that has left her. And in this ballad, she's at the door on the wedding night of her husband to the new young bride. And she is singing. And she sings, Oh, if my sons were seven gray rats running on the milk house wall, I would be a cat and kill them. Oh, if my sons were seven gray wolves running on the brushy hills, I would be a dog chasing them. Oh, if my sons were seven buck deer drinking at the salt lake, I would shoot them. So that's, oh, if my sons were, that's incremental repetition. So that's rhythm. There's inbuilt rhythms. So that's one. The other is sometimes a guitarist will be known for a riff that they do over and over. And if I was to do this, just a second, one of the things we do in folk music, Lulu skipped a maloo, Lulu skipped a maloo. Now that, that is rhythm and it's repetition. And it depends on on rhythm for being recognizable. But even if I did that slowly, the first time that ever I played this rhythm, that would be rhythm because I'm playing it, it is repeating. And I think rhythm has to repeat. I think that's one of the things. Another aspect of rhythm is something like the drone of the banjo. You listen for this, that's the drone string. And because the peg is up here, you don't finger it down there. It will sound all the way through, and it's what drives people crazy listening to the banjo. This over and over again. Some people don't like it at all. Some instruments have it built in. For instance, the bagpipes have drones built in. But if a... Don't want none of your weevil weed, I don't want none of your barley. Give me flour in half an hour, I'll bake a cake for Charlie. Now that's playing no matter. That note still sounds even though it's not in that chord. But the fact that I'm playing it over and over again, that's an aspect of rhythm. It's over and over and over. So I think looking at rhythm as more than just, you know, the drums and the drum beat. Rhythm encourages group action uh, with clapping and dancing. 
One of my favourite songs is Jane Jane. Hey, hey, Jane Jane, my lord and lord, Jane Jane. I'm gonna buy Jane Jane three little bloopers, Jane Jane. One for to whistle, Jane Jane. One for to sing, Jane Jane. One for to do, Jane Jane. Most any little thing, Jane Jane. Now that's an offbeat clap. And I tried for ages to teach British audiences to do that. They could not clap on the offbeat until I told them, look, stamp your foot on the onbeat and then clap. So you can't see my, my leg going down, down, foot, hand, foot, hand, foot, hand, and then they could do it. But without that clapping, which is an emphasis of rhythm, the song isn't the same to me. If I sit here and sing, hey, 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 Jane, Jane, my lordy, lord. So I am dancing with this. I'm doing a bodily movement. So often rhythm feels as if, even if the community's not there, it feels as if they could be there if they wanted, you know? That it could be something that sometimes, <laughs> sometimes people join in on uh, rather inadvertently if you're in a, a folk music set, setting and they've got all the wrong chords and they've got all the wrong things but they're still trying to join in on their guitars. So that kind of thing seems to me to encourage people to do something as group and realizing that other people are getting this at the same time as you are. Whereas Pulse kind of feels more like individual that I choose to do it when I want. The rhythm is not telling me to do this no matter what. Because once you set up a rhythm in folk music, you keep it. You don't change it and do all kinds of funny things. It's the same with the text and the melody. Generally, you don't have a middle eight in folk music. It just doesn't happen for the most part. Not to my knowledge. We have verses and we have choruses. And it comes from an a non-literate society. So it's easy to remember those. It's easy to remember a lot of folk songs, I think. And it doesn't need instruments, a lot of it, to carry it. So Pulse feels like an individual contribution that I have some say in. Whereas in Jane Jane, hey, hey, Jane Jane, and once you start that, you have to continue it. Whereas if I'm singing, oh, the engine stole fair Annie away as she walked by the sea, Lord Thomas a ransom for her paid in gold and silver fee, and then he took her to be his love. So that goes on for seven minutes. And if my pulse is right and my thinking is right, and if I remember all the words, which generally I can because I love that ballad, then I will have ensnared you as an individual. Now here's what's interesting with that. The, because of the pace that it's taken with, and because, believe me, the audience understands more than you think they would, and your communication with them is more direct than you ever think it is, you can ask five or six of them, or seven or eight, or nine, uh, what was Fair Annie dressed in? Oh, she had a red dress on. Oh, no, she had, she had a blue shawl around her. And they're seeing it in their heads, the way I see it in my head, because I always see it happens, even if I'm looking into the distance. You know, when he comes to tell her he's getting a new bride, he comes from, you can't see me, over there, 
and and he comes and he tells her here and for a moment fair annie is sitting right here saying how can you do this i've borne you seven sons so he goes away and then a year later she's standing right here on the porch with her newborn child and her little son by her hand seeing his ship come in over there and this is what i see in my head and uh, and the audience is there hopefully i just someone said close your eyes you don't have to look at me now just close your eyes and just take this in and they will see it in their head maybe not exactly the same as i but every time i sing it that is where the action comes to here and then she sees his ship here she talks to the new bride there and then she the feast is here and we're going around the clock the feast is here then she sits outside the bridal thing playing the banjo to them the new bride speaks up and then the new bride goes home here so where what is rhythm in this the well, there's stress and unstress it's just they're not predictably one following the other and i would never be able to sing fair annie in what i call rhythm but with pulse it takes me over i had a, a really funny event with this in oxford goodness it was before lockdown last year uh, i was coming home via bus and there's an old building all along the side where you wait for the bus and everybody sits on the ledge while they're waiting for the bus so i'm sitting there and i decide to sing ferrani to myself now i think she takes about seven and a half minutes so i start to myself Oh, the engine stole fair Annie away as she walked by. I'm just singing to myself. And there's a woman about four feet away. She moves over and she sits next to me. And I just continue singing. I don't stop because it was a rule in our family that once you start a song, you never interrupt it. No matter what it is, you take it to the end. So I'm sitting there singing fair Annie. And the bus comes and I stand up and get part of the queue, still singing fair Annie. And I get onto the bus, I put my card in, still singing Fair Annie. And I go and I sit down in uh, an empty seat where there's one next to it. And this woman is right behind me in the queue and she comes and sits down beside me and I'm still singing Fair Annie. Um, so when I'm finished, she said, what were you singing? And so I said, well, I was, I was singing a, a long story song. And so she said, well, I couldn't quite catch what it was about, but it sounds, you know, as you were really in it. So I told her the story. And uh, we got off at the same stop. Turns out she lives in the same village that I did. And uh, at the end, she says, thank you, Peggy. She knew who I was. She'd been to my concerts here, but she just followed, hoping to understand it. But I was unable, physically unable to stop singing the story. And I wasn't bothering anybody. I was just singing it to myself and mouthing the words. They probably thought I was some crazy old bird. Yeah. Don't want none of your weary weed. I don't want none of your barley. Give me flour in half an hour. I'll bake a cake for Charlie. I would say music has run my life. I have to practice every single day. Now I have to practice an hour and a half, even just to keep from moving backward, just to keep my, my arthritic hands going. I have always practiced 
I have, I, I, I'm doing five, four songs today in, in, a, in my Peggy at Five on Sunday, which I will probably record today. And I have had to drill those songs into me so I don't look as if I'm reading a text. So music runs my life. I run, wander around the house singing. Music made me leave my children to go away on tour. You know, music has been the primary, I won't say rhythm, uh, of my life, but I just can't imagine ever not having music in my life. As far as my lived life is concerned, there is a rhythm, but music has a part of it in that sometimes I'll play a song that I really want to hear on my, on my iTunes and I'll dance around the house to it, uh, or I'll just run through one of my favorite ballads, all of which are bloody and which end in chaos and, and murder. <laughs> I've had music from the very beginning. When my brother Mike died, that was in 2009, I think. He didn't want to hear music when he was dying. He wanted silence. He didn't want people talking to him. You know, he, he wanted to know where he was going rather than where he'd been. And he wanted to look ahead to what was coming. So who knows, there may be a time when I don't want. But one thing is for sure, if there's music happening anywhere, you won't get my full attention. My brain will be shifted to that. Toast podcasts are presented by me, Laura Barton, and produced by Jeff Bird. The music for this series is by Laura James. Toast is a British clothing and lifestyle brand that aspires to a slower, more thoughtful way of life. To hear more episodes from this and former series, head to Toast Magazine, which can be found at www.toa.st. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe. <laughs>